Okay, so the thing that I really like, because I'm a story person and a picture person, and I love movies and I love books, is the way that Jesus talks so much in pictures and in imagery. I also think that it can sometimes make it confusing because he uses like so many different ways and images and analogies and stories to tell us and demonstrate these truths about life because he is, as we talked about last night, a mystery. He is outside of what we can grasp and understand. And so he uses different stories and different analogies to be like, I'm a little like this, and it's a little like this, how spiritual life works. And he, what we see in John, and why I like reading through the Gospels, and why I like having so many different stories this weekend of Jesus interacting with different people is because every single one is a little bit different. He's always talking about the same thing, but he's using just a slightly different way to explain it based on what he knows that person needs to hear. Um, there's a quote that I was reading um, in a book by Lynn. Oh, yeah, I'm supposed to do it, not you. Thank you, Mark. Mark, my little sister Mark fairy over there. Um, <laughs> it says, language about God should help us to understand and encounter God, but we should not confuse the reality of God with the limits of our language. Because language and every picture and every illustration and every explanation that I'm going to be able to give you tonight that is used in here, they're all, they all lack. They all fall a little bit short. They're not going to fully reach the explanation of God. So they help us to understand and to encounter God. But we shouldn't confuse the reality and the mystery and the bigness and unexplainableness of God with the limits of our language. I explain that because we're going to we're going to look at a couple different analogies, terms, symbols and ways that Jesus talks to people and tries to explain some very complicated spiritual reality. So, um, let's get into it. I promised you we were in the story of Jesus and Nicodemus and I promised you we'd come back because if you remember last night, Nicodemus had come to Jesus and he's saying, I heard you're from God and we want to know, like, are you the one basically bring, to bring the kingdom? And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, you're not going to see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And I told you that brought up two questions to me. What's the kingdom of God, which we talked about a little bit, and we talked about maybe changing in our minds that for our purposes to just pretty simply say the reign of God in a human heart even though we talked about what Nicodemus was misconstruing. Um, and then the other question was, why do I have to be born again to see it? What does that even mean? And I have to be honest, I got to starting this second teaching, knowing that I was going to answer that question, I was like, dang it, that is hard. I do not like that term. Born again sounds super weird. And I told you last night I don't like when things get weird. I don't like sounding too super spiritual. And I don't, I don't actually like, I feel like born again. You have to understand, Jesus used this term with Nicodemus. We're going to talk about why maybe. But this is like 2,000 some plus years later and a lot of culture and a lot of messed up people that have taken that term and really changed its connotation. Really changed what maybe comes up in our idea when we think of a born again Christian. In fact, <laughs> this was so not good timing for my nerves. 
I went to coffee just a week and a half ago after this was already figured out with a friend, a mom of one of the kids in my kids' class. And we were just at coffee and talking, and I was asking her a little bit about her spiritual background. Um, and she, go, she like makes a joke and goes, oh, well, my father-in-law, he came, you know, after she tells this terrible story of kind of her relationship with her, him and her husband's. Um, oh, but he thought he'd make it all better. He came knocking on my, you know, our door when my husband was an adult and said, it's all better. I'm a born-again Christian. And she tells this story to me, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. This is why I hate this idea, this term. Um, I was looking up. This was also not a good idea. I was Googling, and, and really, I just wanted to understand what are the things that draw to people's minds when they hear the idea of being born again, and there was this girl in a chat room that was talking about how she feels like she would like to explore a relationship with God. Sometimes she says, though, she's overwhelmed by the horrible feeling that the God stuff is only for proper believers, i.e. the born-agains, as if they've annexed off to the whole terrain. I think that, tragically, the term born again has somehow gotten misconstrued. And now, what we think of is either the very perfect Christian, the very rule-following, perfect family, perfect, never misses a church attendance, that's a born-again Christian. It has this connotation of a lot of legalism and following the rules. Or, a lot of times, we'll hear the stories of like... Um, people who have just had really tragic lives and been um, really wayward, uh, ended up in prison and have this just really past history, and then they found Jesus and they're born again. And so we think that the term born again is either for the total destitute sinner or the total righteous man. But what's interesting about that is that we just read the story of Nicodemus who was the religious man, who was already the never-missed-a-Sunday churchgoer. And he is the one. He wasn't a destitute sinner. He was a religious, rule-following, legalistic man, if there ever was one. And he's the one that Jesus decides to use the term, you need to be born again. As you are standing here perfectly religious and following all the rules, you, Nicodemus, are the one who needs to be born again. So clearly the term born again and the idea of being born again is not for the person who is living their life all perfectly. Um, or is. I think I said that weird, but you know what I mean. We're going to keep moving on. So what does it mean? Let's just talk about what it means. Let's try to shed what we may have already heard and what connotations it may draw up for us. And let's just look and see what Jesus might be really saying to Nicodemus. So he says, if you'll open with me, um, I have some verses on slides, but our stories in John 3 with Nicodemus, if you can just open up or I'll read it to you. So I'm going to pick up kind of where we left off. Nicodemus is very confused. He's like, I don't understand. Am I supposed to go back into my mother's womb and be born again? He's taking it very literally. And this is what Jesus says to him in verse 5. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. This term in the Greek, when John was writing this, this word would have been anothen, 
which is a Greek word, and it pretty much, in all of the times that John uses this word in his entire book that he's writing, it's always translating as from above when it says again. So Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you need to be born from above. He's trying to say, yes, flesh and a fleshly birth gives life to a fleshly life, and it gives you a fleshly eyes and fleshly perspective and fleshly life. If you want a spiritual life, you need to be born spiritually. This makes sense, but I think the thing that I don't want us to miss here is that Jesus is telling Nicodemus, if he's saying you need to be spiritually alive, then he's telling him, you are not spiritually alive now. And we can't, we can't skip past how surprising and shocking that would be to Nicodemus. How surprising and shocking it would probably be to us who Jesus might go to and be like, you need to be spiritually alive. You are not yet. This is Nicodemus. This is the perfect family on your street with the perfect children and the never miss church attendance and the going and helping in the charities and the looking like I've got it all together person. And Jesus is saying, the most religious of the religious, you don't have any spiritual life. I remember two times in my life where I kind of came to the realization that all of my spiritual effort, all of my good works, all of my obedience and my rule following, because I grew up in the church and I very much was the never miss a Sunday type of girl and person. And I remember getting to these two different points in my life that some of you have heard me tell before. One at the end of high school and one right after I got married where I had this realization of, I have been following all of the rules. I have been doing what I am supposed to do and all of a sudden feeling like it isn't amounting to anything. This life, this spiritual abundant life that I've read about, I'm not feeling any of it. And it felt like all of my religious works and all of my obedience and all of my spiritualness had been for nothing. And I kind of realized in those moments that I felt like I've been doing all this stuff, God. I'm, I've been doing it to get on your side and get in your favor and receive something that I feel like you owe me now. But I remember getting to the end of high school and feeling like it kind of looks like everybody else is having more fun than me. Maybe in college I want to try to live a little bit differently. I remember getting into marriage, and for me, I turned 21, and I got married, and so the two big things for a youth group girl were you don't drink and you don't sleep around, and now those rules weren't on me anymore, and I felt like, well, I thought I, I, thought I deserved some big reward. I thought life was going to feel super fulfilling and rewarding because I followed all the rules, and I feel like I deserve something now, and so I really was left going what is spiritual life? What is it supposed to be? Because clearly it's not just some big reward at the end of following a whole bunch of rules. I think that this is where Jesus is trying to get Nicodemus um, in this conversation and where I want him to lead us tonight. In all of Nicodemus's religion and rituals, they didn't make him spiritually alive. So for us, if quiet times and church attendance and volunteering and following the rules and doing what I'm supposed to does not equal being spiritually alive, then what does? 
What does that look like? That's what I want us to look at tonight. So Jesus says this tricky and frustrating thing. We talked about it in one context last night. In verse 8, he explains to Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And he says, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. This is one of those pictures that Jesus is showing, and it's a super frustrating one because he's like, you're not really going to know how it works. You're not really going to totally be able to understand how this all plays out. But I'll tell you what you will be able to do. You'll be able to see the effects. You'll be able to know from the effects. So tonight, I want us to look at um, two signs, two effects that we should see in us if there is spiritual life two ways that we can know that spiritual life is happening. And then um, in that, I kind of also want us to see in the way that Jesus is describing it, two sort, like the source, two ways that he describes the source of this spiritual life. He uses two different analogies we're going to look at tonight to understand where the source of this spiritual life is. So the first one, I do have slides. I just keep forgetting about them. I don't have that many, though. Is it not working now, Mark? Because you did it once for me. Oh, there we go. New life equals new fruit. So if we are spiritually alive, we will produce what the Bible calls spiritual fruit. How do we want to know if something is alive physically? Because Jesus is comparing this physical life and spiritual life the whole time. So if we want to know something's alive physically, we look at whether it's growing How do we know? Why do we take babies to the doctors so much in the first year of their life? Because we want to see if they're growing. We want to see if they're thriving and if there's, we check their vital signs. This also is like, how do you know physically what family you come from? When I'm born, I have a DNA, a physical DNA that actually produces in me as I grow physical characteristics that match the family that I was born from. I look a lot like them. I will actually have features, skin and eyes and hair and even talents that demonstrate, that look like the family that I come from. And when I'm born spiritually, it's the same thing. As I continue to grow and there is spiritual life born in me, I will have spiritual characteristics that grow and manifest themselves in me. We can check some of those. The Bible talks about them in Galatians 5.22. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This reminds me of what Ashley was talking about this morning in her testimony when she said, he healed me, but he healed me. She had a peace and a hope moving forward that she didn't have before. The things that, her, that were being produced in her bitterness and envy and frustration and anger and resentment, Those things weren't coming out anymore. Peace and hope were coming out. There was life that Jesus birthed in her, and it was coming out in the fruit. Um, I have seen this in so many of you that I'm trying to think of which analogies, analogies to use. But if you think about these words and you look at the times that things come out of you that you're like, that shouldn't naturally be my response but yet suddenly I'm exhibiting some sort of self-control that I know earlier days Katie probably would not have exhibited. That is evidence 
of spiritual life being birthed in me. Now, I want to stop here because I know a lot of you, and I know myself, and as soon as I start to hear this, and as soon as I start to look at this list, I start to feel guilt. And I start to go, dang it, am I not spiritually alive then? Do I need to work harder? You're right, I need to work on patience, and I need to work on love, and I definitely need to work on my self-control. I hesitated to even use this fruit thing. I took it out like a million times because it sounds like works. It sounds like, okay, Katie, well then here's the list and that's my goal sheet and I want to have spiritual life so I'm going to pick these. Maybe I'll pick one a month and I'll just work really hard on being loving and then I'll be work really hard on being patient. I know you guys. I am you. I get it. But you guys, this was Nicodemus's route. This is what Nicodemus did. This When we're talking about spiritual life being produced in us, this is not something we do for ourselves. Jesus specifically tells Nicodemus, you need a whole new starting point. None of what you are working for is producing this kind of fruit in you. None of what you are doing is producing life. That's why he uses, well, I'm going to get to that. He needs a literal new origin. He needs a new heart change. If you think about a very simple analogy that God has given us in nature with trees and growing. If I have a lemon tree over here and I really want apples, do I go, well, I'm going to water it more. And I'm going to take like a whole month and I'm going to dig around. I'm going to put fresh soil on it. I'm going to trim it up real good and I'm going to make sure it's in the perfect sunlight and then it'll produce apples. A lemon tree will always produce lemons. If I want apples, I have to uproot the lemon tree, and I have to plant a seed that has the DNA of apples. This is what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus about needing to be born again. He needs the DNA of the Spirit. He needs an entire new life born in him. And I think that's why he uses for Nicodemus the term being born again. Because if you think about it, what does physical birth look like? Well, (laughs) all right. I heard it. (laughs) Who births a baby? Does a baby birth itself? Does a baby bring life to itself? No. It is someone else's labor. It is someone else's pain. It is actually, not to get gruesome, someone else's blood that brings new life into this world, even in our physical analogy that we're talking about. I love that God uses this analogy of spiritual birth. He actually relates himself. We tend to think, because we're so limited in our language and we call God the Father so much, that we tend to think of him as a man and we don't tie some of these mothering images to him. But read Isaiah 42, 14. For a long time, this is God speaking, I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. God, through Jesus, did a work of labor to allow anyone new birth. It is not the babies that birth themselves into new life. I think a lot of us are workers like Nicodemus. And this is a really hard concept for us to understand because we would like to check boxes and we would like to follow rules and we would like to make sure that we're on the right team and we're doing all the good works and we're accomplishing something for ourselves. But I think that Jesus is saying to Nicodemus and to us, when you're not seeing spiritual life 
coming out in you, when these, this list feels discouraging and your first tendency is, okay, well, then I need to work harder. What's one more thing I need to do? Jesus is saying, I bring that about in you. You need to cease striving and let my life be born in you. Let me do the work. Titus 3.5 says he saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. John 1.12 says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God and God alone. This is the difference between Jesus being a teacher that tells Nicodemus a lot of good ways to draw near to God and be on God's good, getting God's good graces, like Nick was approaching him, and Jesus being a savior who literally is the way to a relationship with God, to new life through God. Maybe this is what you need to hear tonight. Maybe you are working really hard to be the perfect Christian, the perfect neighbor, the perfect mom, the perfect wife, the perfect coworker, the perfect volunteer, the perfect friend. You're trying to conjure up patience and you're trying to conjure up wisdom. But Jesus is looking at you and saying, there's no life in what you're doing. It's not coming from any of that. You're exhausted and you're afraid and you're working really hard because my power isn't in any of that. You need my spirit to be birthed in you. It's not through your own effort. It's through literally surrendering and allowing yourself to be born. This is actually where Jesus leaves Nicodemus in this story and we don't hear a whole lot more about him. So new life is going to look like some new fruit. And a new life also looks a little bit like a new perspective. These are not, this is not an exhaustive list, but these are the two that I felt like drew out of this story a little bit and that I wanted to talk about tonight. Okay, so remember that Jesus says to Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you won't see the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Meaning that if he is born again, he will see the kingdom of heaven, see the kingdom of God. So I can know that spiritual life is born in me if I begin to see some things from God's perspective. If my heart begins to understand the reign and the rule and the ways and the hope and the heart of God. This does make sense too, even in that physical analogy that we were talking about. If I'm born physically, I'm going to look a little bit like the physical family that I came from. If I'm born into a family and I raised and grow up in a family... I'm also going to adapt a lot of perspective and a lot of traits and a lot of ideas from that family that I grew up in. I'm going to pick up different quirks, different lenses and attitudes through which I see the world, through the family that I've been raised with. It gives me a perspective through which to view the world. I, um, you don't know this. This is the funny thing about perspective. You don't know this until you get a little bit older. Maybe you leave your parents' home and you start to like live with roommates or you get married and you live with a husband and you're like, I didn't know that was weird that I did that. Or what are you doing? Because that's weird. And you start to clash these perspectives and you're like, this, I didn't even know there was another perspective to see. I, um, 
I know for me, uh, I grew up and we just had car after car after car because you never make a payment on a car. And so it didn't matter. It just needed to get you from point A to point B. And if it broke down once in between point A and point B, as long as it started again, that's not a big deal. It's no, no problem. I didn't even think that was weird. In fact, still, I'm kind of in that until like somebody is going to drive with me and then I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. It's really dirty in here. It's really gross. Um, I remember Ryan being like looking at my car in college, or I think I, I was going to tell you, I, the first time that I realized was actually in high school, I was driving around this beater car, and my friends like took it, locked it up, and put a note on it and said like the white piece or the piece of trash is underneath the white piece of trash by the garbage cars or something. They called my car a piece of trash, and I was like, I like my car. Why are they? It was like I saw it from a different perspective, and all of a sudden I was like embarrassed by my car, but I'd never thought twice about it. Um, I remember. Uh, when Ryan started hanging out with our family, he went on a road trip with us while we were dating. And road trips in my family with my dad was like, you do not ask to stop and go to the bathroom on a road trip. You just hold it and we'll just go. And whenever Wayne decides to stop, that's when everybody goes and takes advantage. And I remember we pulled up to a drive-through and because it was a long time, it was not anywhere near a mealtime, we'd skipped past, we were just making time, and we pull up to this drive-thru, and my dad, Ryan's like getting ready to like say what he wants to order, and my dad, I didn't even think this was weird at the time, my dad just ordered like, I'll take 10 hamburgers and like four fries, and you know, he just did a mass order, and then he just threw the bag in the back for my brothers and me and Ryan to just kind of divvy out, and Ryan's like, this is so weird. <laughs> and he like looked at me, he's like, did I, I don't know. It was just one of those perspective things that I was like, I don't know. I didn't even think about that being weird. Uh, <laughs> sorry. I'm just letting you into all our weirdness. Um, I knew that my perspective was shifting and that Ryan and my perspective was becoming one and that I was adopting a new perspective that was kind of all my own. This is also, sorry you guys, these analogies are super small and kind of dumb, but I feel like they show the point. So the other thing that's weird about my dad is <laughs> we grew up and you just did not order soda at a restaurant. No way. Soda is the biggest markup. That's going to cost you so much money. Everyone gets water at every restaurant you ever are at your whole life. Non-negotiable. So I marry Ryan. Actually, I just start dating Ryan. And I go to dinner with his family and they get soda every time. Anyone can get whatever soda they want. They can get two sodas, even if they don't have free refills. It's like not a thing. It's totally fine with them. And I remember being like, what is happening? I feel so stressed out. Like, do I have to, can I really get a soda? It was like a really big deal to me. I know, but just go with me. It was a really big deal. And what was weird was, for years, you guys, years, like the year we were dating, the year we were engaged, a good year at least into marriage, you better believe I did not miss an opportunity to order a soda. <laughs> we were at restaurant after restaurant with them because they eat out a lot, and I did not even want sodas sometimes, and I was like, I'm getting a soda because you can get a soda. So I would just order it. I knew it was changing, and suddenly I was adopting a new perspective because it was a really big thing for me. The first night we went to a restaurant and I was like, I'll just have water. I don't even, I don't feel like a soda and I don't have to, there'll be another time. We'll go to a restaurant another time. I don't, I can get a soda then. 
Maybe you're thinking I'm crazy right now, but that was a big change for me as I was realizing that is not true about life in general, that you must take opportunity to get soda whenever you can. <laughs> it took way too long on that point, you guys. Sorry. I'm totally sweating now. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Someone run and get me a soda. <laughs> Keep laughing for a second. I'm going to regroup. Okay. Similarly, if I am born again spiritually, there are spiritual realities and shifts in my perspective that will start to take root in my life. And they will start to inform decisions of mine that I used to think were non-negotiables. And they will change that about me. I will see that come about. Um, the interesting thing that I have to just real quick kind of take this little caveat and explain is if you look... Um, when Jesus is going about and he's doing his miracles and the things that he's saying to the people, there's this verse in Luke 4, 43, where Jesus says, oh, he's done all these miracles, and the people are like, stay with us, just do the miracles here. And Jesus says his purpose. He says, I can't. I have to go to the other towns. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. So good news literally means in this context and the way that these words were heard back then, good news is actually like an announcement or a proclamation of like a history-defining shift. It's, it's like if somebody came in to all the Jews that were in the concentration camps and said, good news, the war is over and you are free. Good news in this context that Jesus is using it is like, things have changed. There has been a dramatic shift in history. Good news. I'm proclaiming that what once was is different now. So when Jesus is proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, he's saying there's been a history shift. Things are different now. God has come and is coming. He's rescuing and he's writing things it's good news that he's conquering the reign of sin and that's keeping people from participating in his ways and will. It's good news that the way that God intended relationship between him and man to work, that's being fixed right now. That's being righted. That is the good news of the kingdom of God. Now, the second part to Jesus' message that he keeps saying to all these people as he's going around, you see it a little bit more clearly in Mark 1.15, where he says really similarly, but he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. So to repent literally means to see from a new perspective and change your course of action because of it. The definition literally is to have a change of heart and mind, to look at things from a new point of view, to think about things differently and to change your course in light of the new perspective. So when Jesus is calling them to repent and believe because of the good news, he's saying things have changed, believe it, and change your perspective because of it. This perspective shift touches every part of our lives. It changes our purpose and our identity. It changes the things that we're about because now we're a child of God. We're allowed to be born into and a part of the reign of God so we can be about the things that he is about, justice and mercy, forgiveness, 
humility, love. When you look at the things that Jesus is about in here, those are the things he's demonstrating. This is the reign of God and the kingdom of God. Change your perspective and be about them. It also gives us this new lens through which we can begin to understand, just like um, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about the source of life being birth and a brand new origin. Um, It gives us a new perspective through which we understand where life comes from and where death comes from, from God's perspective. What God's ways are, what his values are, they like lay kind of like a blanket over our life, and all of a sudden we begin to see things differently. It's almost like a decoder. This is what it looks like to begin to see the kingdom of God. Um, (laughs) I pulled this up. You guys remember these? Have you seen these? You know when there's like this scrambly thing, but then you put like a film over it or you put the glasses on and then there's like a secret message underneath. Oh no, you can't, can you see it kind of? It says save the date. These blown up pictures are ruining everything. (laughs) Thank you. Jayshan can see it, save the date. Um, When we begin to get this shift in perspective, through our spiritual lives, it's like, it's like we lay a map over our lives and suddenly the things that we thought were normal, God goes, that's not my way. That doesn't bring life. Over here, here's the source of life. This is what, this is what I'm about. This is what I care about. This is what I value. I want to end our night um, looking at one more story, one more illustration of what this might look like in a life because born again is how Jesus talks to Nicodemus, but it's not actually the term that he uses for a lot of the other people that he interacts with and talks with. In fact, the very next chapter and the very next person that Jesus sees, he doesn't describe it like that. He describes it differently. So we're going to keep going to chapter 4 of John, and we're going to read a story about a woman at a well. And I want to remind you, of what I was sharing with you last night that I love about the Bible being a literary text and that we can look at this and think about what John, the author, was doing when he composed these stories and was trying to tell us something. He picked the order. He put things in a way, and he puts this story of Nicodemus right next to this story of the woman at the well. And you're going to see, I think, unless you think I'm crazy, So many parallels set up right next to each other to highlight a contrast and to make point. So we have a religious man that we just learned about in chapter 3 who comes to Jesus at night. And now we have what you're going to find out is a totally sinful woman, very disgraced and dishonored woman, man, woman, religious, disgraced, coming at night in the middle of the day. And both are about to have a conversation with Jesus where they almost comically completely miss what he is trying to tell them because they're looking at it too literally. Okay, so Jesus is in this story. He's been traveling and he's going. He has to go through Samaria and he stops at this well. And I won't get into how he went out of his way, didn't have to go that route, but he stops at this well in Samaria, and uh, the Samaritans at the time were a disgraced people, kind of a half-breed is how they would have been described, definitely not respected or liked by the Jews. 
And this is where they stop at this well, and Jesus is sitting there, and um, the woman comes to the well to draw, draw water. And we're going to pick up in verse 11, if you are following along. Jesus asks the woman to get him a drink, to get him water out of the well, and she says to him, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Sounds a lot like Nick. Oh, no, not yet. <laughs> Sorry, I lost my spot. Oh, we're going to go a little further. Okay, so she comes, asks him for a drink. She goes, how, how are you asking me for a drink? And he says, if you knew who it was that was asking you for a drink, you would have asked me for a drink, and I would give you living water. And her response to him in verse 11 is, sir, you don't even have anything to draw water with. This well is really deep. Where are you even going to get this living water? Which to them, they understood living water to be like a stream, like a moving water. And she's like, we're in the middle of a desert, and I know that we have searched high and wide, and there is no living water around, and this well is deep. How are you even going to get this water? This totally sounds like where Nicodemus' story was going, where he's taking it way too literally. So Jesus says again to her in verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty the water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So here's where Jesus uses a little bit of a different metaphor. With Nick, he was telling him, your problem is that you're spiritually dead. You've been trying to make yourself alive through religion and being a good person and impressing everyone, and there's no power in it instead of getting you nowhere, and you need to be born again. But for the woman, he says, your problem is that you're spiritually thirsty and you're trying to drink from all sorts of places and it's never quenching your thirst and I have something. You also know that it's not working. I'm going to point that out in a second. You also know that there's longing in you. You need to drink from a new well. You need a new source of water, which the interesting thing about these analogies is that water symbolized life for them back then and really for us now. So she resonates with this, this uh, suggestion of being thirsty and longing and a desire to, not to experience it anymore. And this is where she actually, in her response, differs a little bit from Nick because Nick stays caught up on the, that doesn't make any sense. How? How are you going to do this? But she just simply goes, well, okay, give it to me. <laughs> Sir, give me this water is what she says. Nick doesn't actually ask for a new birth or anything like that. He's still like, I would like to understand how this works. But she's like, okay, you're right. I am thirsty. Sir, give me this water so that I don't have to come back here and drink anymore. I would like that. So Jesus' response to her in verse 16 is where he starts to dig in to her heart a little bit more. Verse 16, Jesus says to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying you have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. This is the point where you can almost see Jesus slipping the decoder glasses <laughs> over her eyes so that as she looks at the scramble of her life, she's like, oh, I don't think what I'm doing is working. And Jesus is like, can you see from my perspective, this over here is why you're so thirsty. You have been trying to find life somewhere that there is no life. 
it might as well on the map have said dead end. <laughs> this is not working for you. This kind of reminds me, this point in the story, of where um, I told you at the beginning of the night, I found myself two times, or two different times, I mean many times, but these were the most kind of poignant and dramatic in my story, where I felt like there's no life in what I'm doing. This religion and rule following is not producing life that I thought it would. And unfortunately, I didn't really hear the message that it was religion that was failing me and that all I needed was to cease and let life be born in me. So I went to find life other places. And I started dabbling in just really destructive behavior in college. I'm sure you can fill in the blanks and imagine. Even in my marriage then, when I felt like, well, this isn't really all that it's cracked up to be, I just started acting really destructively. Started imagining other lives and other scenarios that I wanted more. Started daydreaming and escaping in my own mind. And I, went, I began down a really destructive path in my behaviors and my attitudes. And all that I can tell you makes no sense except that Jesus, God, laid a film all of the sudden in these two different times in my life, laid a film over my eyes at one point and said, this is death. What you are doing right now leads to death and you need to, you are missing the source of life. It also reminds me of sometimes in the Psalms when it says he just reached in and grabbed you right out. There's so many rich analogies for the way that God works in our lives. So Jesus says to this woman, as he said to me, look, there is life to be had here, but over here is not where it's at. This is death that you've been drinking from. I'm offering you life. It's just over here. So maybe that's more you tonight. Maybe you resonate with the thirst and the longing. Maybe life hasn't been what you expected it to be. And so really, you're kind of like the woman at the well right now, just looking for whatever little tiny cups of water you can get to quench a little bit of thirst until you can find another cup to quench a little bit of thirst because you're like, I'm not even sure if there's anything more fulfilling than that that exists. So I'm just going to keep drinking shallow little cups of water and get whatever quench out of life I can. Maybe you're escaping in your mind a little bit like I did, daydreaming of the next vacation, or the next husband, or the next job, or the next house or project that's going to fix everything and quench what feels thirsty. Maybe you're holding on to resentment and anger or diving headfirst into it because it kind of feels like it quenches your thirst for a second when you feel that frustration or that unforgiveness or that anger. But Jesus is saying, like he says to the woman, these things don't bring life. I promise, let me put the decoder glasses over your eyes. This is death. It leads to death. I do have life. It does exist. It's just over here. It's funny because this conversation goes on a little bit longer. I like that this conversation with Nicodemus is short and the conversation with the woman at the well, even though she doesn't get it, Jesus is like, it's okay, we'll stay a little longer. I'll explain a little bit more. So it does threaten to go the exact way of Nicodemus because she also gets a little hung up on religion. When he reveals that he knows her past, she goes, okay, kind of like Nicodemus saw the miracles, I see your power. 
I admit it, you're probably a prophet, which means from God. So then she goes into some religious questions. Well, let me ask you this then. She's not arguing with Jesus out of religion because she thinks she's done it all right. Her story is a little bit more like April's response to her friend at the post. I know what religion has to say to me. You can't tell me anything about religion that I don't already know. And for her, she has lived her whole life being told, you Samaritans, our God is not for you. You don't get access to him. You don't worship him right. You don't live right. You don't have the right race, nationality. It was all back then a lot more um, one thing. And they believed, the Jews believed, the Samaritans are disqualified. And then on top of it, her life choices had told her, this isn't for me. So she knows exactly what religions told her about being allowed to be a part of the kingdom of God. And so she tells Jesus, well, don't you want to point it out? It's too late for me. I worship wrong, right? I don't get access to this thirst-quenching stuff that you're talking about. And it's almost like she's baiting Jesus and waiting for him to confirm that she is disqualified, that this isn't for her. And, and Jesus' response is, nope, don't care about that. That's changing anyways. I'm doing away with all of that. Don't worry. That doesn't matter anymore. That's, I'm going to sum up. John 4.24 says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming and is now come where the true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Remember Jesus' invitation that I was talking about in his like statements that he was making to the people to repent and believe the good news? This is the woman's invitation to repent. Jesus is painting a new perspective for her, and he's saying, it is for you. Now, believe the perspective that I am telling you, the good news of the shift that I am telling you is occurring, and change your course of action in light of it. Um, I have one last, I know I got really geeky with you on all of the like eye-tweaking imagery changes, but I have one last kind of image of suddenly seeing differently. And I don't know how much I want to set it up. I think I'm just, maybe some of you will have heard of this, but I think it explains it enough. I'm just going to let you watch what happens when somebody suddenly sees different than they've been seeing their whole life. Don't break it. So this is a gift that they've just gotten their grandpa. I think they're going to explain it. If they don't, I'll say it really quick. So they're glasses oh, for the colorblind. Color <laughs> <laughs> he says, I am colorblind. So now these, are, these are special glasses mm -hmm. that have been engineered that when people wear them that are colorblind, it's color just like we all see. Did you hear them? These are special glasses, and when people wear them, they can see color like we all see color. This rock where we're supposed to be? It'll like how we all see it. You'll yeah. direct your eyes so that you'll see how Daddy, you hate it? 
<laughs> Papa, look at the hat. <laughs> He'd been seeing one way his whole life. There was another reality out there. It's not like colors just appeared. He just hadn't had the eyes to see them. And he puts these glasses on, and he's overwhelmed at reality that he just hadn't seen yet. So the woman asks one more question to Jesus. It's almost like she needs this final permission to believe that this is actually for her and that this man talking to her has some, actually has the authority to make this decision for her, that, she's, that this is available to her. So she says, I know, there's, I know the Messiah is supposed to come and he'll explain everything to us. Because Jesus is telling her really profound good news that the kingdom of God is for her, that she's not disqualified. And she says, I don't really know if you have the credibility to make that call. And so she kind of puts out there this fishing question about the Messiah. And Jesus says to him, woman, I who speak to you am he. With this, she believes. She puts on the glasses. And she allows it to inform what she says is everything she's ever done. And she sees it from a new perspective. And you can see it almost immediately begin to taint and shape how she understands things and how she sees things because she stands up and she runs into town. She had been avoiding the people in town her whole life because she was a disgraced adulterer, woman with five husbands. So she went to the well in the middle of the day when the rest of the women didn't. And now she runs back into the town and she starts talking about all the things she's ever done. Because all of the sudden, they don't matter anymore. They're not disgraceful anymore. She's been told she's not disgraced. She's not disqualified. As April said, it's not too late for her. This is a picture of repentance and belief because somebody's been told good news. We're going to go into a time of worship and prayer tonight. It's a little bit extended, and you're going to have some different opportunities throughout it to do some different things. But as we're worshiping, I just want you to consider where you find yourself tonight. Maybe you relate to Nicodemus. Maybe you've been working really hard doing the right thing to find life. And to you, Jesus is saying, stop striving. It's not going to come from you anyway. It doesn't come from your rules and your obedience and your hard work. I birth it in you, and it'll bring about new fruit and new, new things in yourself that you never thought possible. Maybe you see yourself a little bit more like the woman at the well right now, where you are thirsty and searching, and maybe you're caught up in some destructive behavior because you're looking for life. And maybe tonight Jesus is slipping the glasses over your eyes a little bit and being like, I know you want life. Let me show you where to find it because I promise it's not in this stuff. I'm going to invite the band up to come and worship and I'll pray to close us.